Deputy Director Tentador, all yours. Thank you, President Gruber. All right, uh, good evening. This is the November 14th, 2023 regular meeting of the REN Board Commission. I am Deputy Director and Board Secretary Barbara Texador. Starting tonight, the Commission will take public comments from members of the public present at the in-person meeting only. There is no longer an opportunity for members of the public to provide public comment remotely, unless you have requested a reasonable accommodation from REN Board staff and it has been granted prior to the start of the meeting. Members of the public, the Renford Commission meeting where the commissioners may be considering your case on appeal is not an interactive hearing. This will be your opportunity to address the commission and the process is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow feedback. Um, sorry. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or for members of the public to engage in back and forth conversation with the commissioners. City policies, along with federal, state, and local law, prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. General procedures have not changed. You will have three minutes to provide your comment. If you have an interpreter interpreting your comment, you will have six minutes. You are encouraged but not required to state your name for the record. If you are giving comment, Regarding an item on the agenda, please state which item you are speaking about. Please note that anything you say during public comment cannot be used as evidence with regard to the item on which you are speaking. Once your time is up, staff will so indicate. You may hear a timer beeping and you will be informed your time is up. All to order. We will commence with the reading of the Ramatushaloni land acknowledgement. Mr. Wasserman. Sure. We acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral land of the Ramatushaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded lost nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community and by affirming their sovereign rights as first peoples. Thank you. Deputy Director, uh, roll call, please. Thank you, President Gruber. President Gruber? Here. President Gruber present. Commissioner Tom? Commissioner Tom not present. Commissioner Wasserman? Uh, here. Commissioner Wasserman present. Commissioner Klein? Here. Commissioner Klein present. Commissioner Mossbrooker? Here. Commissioner Mossbrooker present. Commissioner Sani? Present. Commissioner Sani present. Commissioner Chan? Here. Commissioner Chan present. Commissioner? Here. Commissioner Crow present. Commissioner Hung? Here. Commissioner Hung present. Commissioner Haley? Commissioner Haley not present. 
I also want to acknowledge that the following staff members are also present. Senior Administrative Law Judge Joey Kumis, Executive Director and Outgoing Board Secretary Christina Varner, and myself, Deputy Director and Board Secretary Barbara Texador. Craig Vance Bronson is handling IT support. At this point, I will announce remarks from the public. Thank you, President Gruber. It is now time for the first of two public comment periods this evening. The second public comment period will occur after the consideration of appeals. Members of the public, the Rent Board Commission meeting, where the commissioners may be considering your case on appeal, is not an interactive hearing. This will be your opportunity to address the commission. This is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting for members of the public to engage in back and forth conversation with the commissioners. City policies, along with federal, state, and local law, prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. Both public comment periods tonight are for general public comment and for all items listed on the agenda. For all members of the public, general procedures have not changed. You will have three minutes to provide your comment. If you have an interpreter interpreting your comment, you will have six minutes. You are encouraged but not required to state your name for the record. If you are giving comment regarding an item on the agenda, please state which item you're speaking about. Please note that anything you say during public comments cannot be used as evidence with regard to the item on which you are speaking. Once your time is up, staff will so indicate you may hear a timer beeping and you will be informed your time is up. We will now take comment from members of the public here in the meeting room. Please step forward one at a time. Okay, uh, good evening everyone. Uh, my name is Randy Lau and I'm a tenant whose building is uh, non-compliant with the mandatory soft story retrofit program and has an outstanding notice of violation that was issued on October 2019. My building was sold earlier this year and after six months, the new owners wanted to legally increase the rent with the banked increases not used by the previous owner. They added their information to the housing inventory portal and were automatically granted a rent increase license from the rent board. They then notified us of the rent increase and in response, I submitted a failure to repair and maintain petition based on the soft story retrofit NOV. The new owners later withdrew the rent increase request. Uh, and for this situation, the rent increase license seemed to send mixed signals to each party. For the owner, they followed the guidelines and were granted a license to impose the rent increase, even though the building had an outstanding NOV. For the tenant, they see the rent board has granted the license to the landlord, which may discourage them from submitting a petition for a property that has an outstanding NOV. I wondered how many other rental units may be in such a situation where tenants may interpret the rent increase license as validation for the rent increase itself, despite an outstanding NOV on the property. So based on a public request for the rent board housing inventory data, buildings granted a rent increase license in 2023 so far of that group there are 1125 units in buildings that have an outstanding nov 
issued by either the building inspection division or code enforcement section between the years 2019 and 2022, meaning they had the NOV before they uh, applied for the rent increase license and it's still currently outstanding. Uh, for simplicity, I didn't include NOVs from other divisions like housing, plumbing, electrical inspection divisions, or uh, NOVs issued before 2019. So with the current process, the burden seems to be on the tenant to highlight something that the DBI has already recorded and made publicly available, and something that the rent board already considers as proof of violation of law. Uh, it seems to be this is an opportunity for the two departments to collaborate or at least have databases talk to each other. I'm here to make a public comment for the rent board to consider amending the housing inventory ordinance so that in order to be granted a rent increase license, the respective buildings also not have any outstanding NOVs from the Department of Building Inspection. This would provide additional incentive for owners to work with the DBI to resolve NOVs. It would also remove the burden on the tenant to utilize city resources and highlight something that is already publicly available. Thank you. Good evening, commission members and rent board staff. My name is Justin Goodman and I represent Fiona Montgomery for line E 1033 Broadway. 1033 to 1035 Broadway is a two unit building subdivided in the year 2000 by Fiona's parents who then gifted 1033 to her. The controlling issue in this case is whether a property owner's vested right to subdivided property means that their property remains subdivided. This is referred to as a vested right. Subdivision is governed by two main bodies of law the Subdivision Map Act, which gives cities control over design and improvement, and the Subdivided Lands Act, which conditions alienation, sale of property, on obtaining a final public report from the state. These reports last for five years before they must be renewed or else they lapse. And the Subdivided Lands Act only applies in buildings with five or more units. Now, in this case, there's no dispute that Broadway was subdivided in compliance with the Subdivision Map Act, the local one, or that the Subdivided Lands Act does not apply. Therefore, no final public report was required and there was nothing to lapse. There's no limitation on a future sale. Fiona now has a vested right to the subdivision of her unit and the ability to alienate without any additional requirements at either the state or local level. The decision was based solely on City of West Hollywood versus 1112 investments, but it does not support the decision. Unlike the larger buildings in that case, which uh, let their final public report lapse, Broadway is no longer capable of losing the characteristic of being subdivided. The issue in 1112 investments was, quote, whether the city can now impose the conditional use requirement. If the city can, and it is undisputed respondent owners have not obtained conditional use permits, then the units are not alienable, and the exemption from rent control found in former Civil Code 1954.52, the law in effect at the time the city initiated the action, does not apply. Now, the corollary of this rule is that if West Hollywood could not impose its conditional use requirement, if the public, final public report had never lapsed, then even the properties in those cases, uh, that case, would simply be subdivided already, and the law in effect at the time, the pre-2001 amendment to Costa-Hawkins, would be the operative law. And this is exactly the case presented here, because the law in effect at the time, which is the pre-2001 uh, version of Costa-Hawkins, uh, applied to the case back then, and nothing ever changed the characteristic of this property. So Fiona now has a vested right to the exemption. 
Neither the opposition nor the ALJ's memorandum even mention the vested rights doctrine, which was half of the 1112 investment analysis, because they don't have an answer to it. It's not disputed that that amendment was a change in law, and therefore it does not operate retroactively. What, what does this mean? Well, according to that court, a statute has a retrospective effect when it substantially changes the legal consequences of past acts. But this isn't just about rent increases because it would be bizarre to say that the choice to subdivide, the choice to alienate, or even the choice to do so as a gift without receiving fair value are not those kinds of past uh, events uh, where a change in law would substantially change the legal consequences. Uh, finally, as the ALJ agrees, the previous decisions of the rent board are not binding on future decisions. Again, this is simply supported by no authority. Instead of West Hollywood versus Beverly Towers, the Supreme Court case relied on. Sorry, Good evening. My name is Adrian Mendel, and I'm here to make brief comments uh, regarding the appeal AL230066, which is item C on the agenda. I represent the tenant petitioner and um, who lives at 1475 Oakdale Avenue in the downstairs unit. The landlord brought this appeal, and I urge you not to disturb the well-reasoned and well-supported decision by the ALJ granting uh, my client's claims of decreased housing services and failure to repair and maintain. We provided a, a voluminous and lengthy uh, response to the appeal last week for all of you to review. I don't want to repeat myself, but I just want to summarize that uh, all of the items that were raised in the landlord's appeal were addressed in the administrative law judge's decision and considered during the hearing and the and uh, the original petition. And um, my client is has been living with holes in her ceilings and other habitability issues that resulted in a notice of violation that was issued in 2018 and remains unabated today. So um, I urge you to not disturb the decision of the appeal. Thank you. Uh, good evening, honorable commissioners and rent board staff. I am Dora G, one of the owners of the building located at 2016-24 Taylor Street. This building has been covered, has been owned by my family and managed by my dad for years. When we started planning for the seismic work, we were advised to add additional units. We had no idea what the process would be or how long it would take. We were shocked when we received the notice of violation for not completing the seismic work on time. I brought up the concerns several times with our architects, our engineer, and our contractor. and was told it would not be a problem, but it was. A project took place during the COVID shutdown, and it was our understanding that the DBI review process and the construction work took much longer in the end, we were not able to secure financial uh, secure finance for the ADUs, and we realized it was just too much work for us at our age to pursue this. During this time, in spite of me getting sick, my dad passed away. We did everything we could to get the work done in a timely manner. The fact that it took so long had caused us a great deal of stress. 
please, please allow us this appeal to provide additional information to Judge Katayama about the facts surrounding the delays that led to the project taking longer than expected. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Megan Johnson. I represent the tenant Meredith Harriman at the line E on 1033 Broadway. Um, the landlord's appeal should be denied on based on the facts and law in this place, which case which clearly support the LJ's decision. It's important to note that the decision decision clearly states, as well as my opposition, that any all the rent increases occurred after the 2002 amendment. Furthermore, the last two increases that the landlord imposed also are attempts to circumvent the just cause protections and are a blatant attempt to get my client out of out of her unit. Um, furthermore, the while I agree that decisions at the administrative level are not binding, they are, however, persuasive and is not improper for the ALJ to consider that in her opinion. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public who wish to provide public comment? If so, please step up to the podium. Now that all members of the public in the meeting room have given the, have been given the opportunity to provide their comments, we will move on to the next agenda item. We move on to item number five, approval of the minutes. This would be the minutes of October 10th, 2023. I'll make a motion to approve. Second. Any comments, additions, subtractions? Call for the vote. A motion to approve the minutes of October 10th, 2023. Commissioner Wasserman? Aye. Commissioner Chen? Aye. President Gruber? Aye. Commissioner Klein? Aye. Commissioner Mossbrooker? Commissioner Sani? Aye. Commissioner Chen? Commissioner Crow? Aye. Commissioner Hung? Aye. As far as public comment, it's nobody that's asked for special. Uh, um, now there have been no requests for um, reasonable accommodations for the Uber. Thank you. Then um, we will move on to item six, uh, consideration of appeals. Um, item A, 629 Guerrero Street, unit number six, um, has been uh, withdrawn. We'll move on to item number B, 733 Myra Way, upstairs unit. The tenant appeals the decision granting in part their claim of decreased housing services. In the decision, the administrative law judge found the landlord liable to the tenant for the sum of $700 for a rotting wood deck, April 29th. 2022 to September 2nd, 2022, but denied the tenant's claim 
that the landlord's limitations on laundry use resulted in a substantial decrease in housing services. In the appeal, the tenant claims that the landlord's laundry schedule prevents him from doing laundry on weekdays, which results in 13 fewer loads of laundry per month and is both inconvenient and unhygienic. I would move to deny that. Sorry, I, oh. I have a recusal on file. My law firm worked on the underlying case. I would uh, move to deny the appeal. Second. Is a motion to deny the appeal? Discussion? I, I think my problem with this decision is that, I mean, it seems like the, the DLJ is thinking as long as the laundry access is equitable, then it's not a decent housing service. I mean, I think there's a problem with that the rationale, I feel, is that where's the limiting principle? Is it just giving each unit one day a week that will still be equitable? To both parties, but I think we all can agree that that will be a decrease in housing services for both tenants. But that's not the standard. Has to be a substantial decrease. I mean, not you know any old decrease doesn't doesn't rise to the level of justifying rent reduction. It's got to be substantial. And I hear you. I, I I agree with you, but I don't think it's substantial. That's the, therein lies the the issue for me. I mean, you, you sort of. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, the evidence, because the, the ALJ apply a closed standard, I'm not sure if, if the reduction is substantial or not, because the sort of ALJ sort of applied a different standard of whether it's equal after the fact or not, rather than whether the decrease from the beginning of tendency to now is substantial. But if you, I, I mean, I would like to remand just to make that determination based on, you know, whether the ALJ to make the ALJ to determine whether decrease is substantial or not, not just because, you know, just not just analyzing whether it's still equal access to the laundry or not. I mean, if the landlord had said, okay, you guys are squabbling over the mailbox and you tenants get to take the mail out Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, you tenants, you can have get your mail Monday. Wednesday and Friday, I think we'd find a decrease in service. And that's what we what we have here. I mean, it wasn't for the landlord to decide what is to be King Solomon. It's whether or not when enacting as King Solomon and cutting the baby there was a decrease in service. I also think that having half the amount of time of access to your laundry is risk represented a substantial decrease in services. I mean, that has a disruption to schedules, that has a disruption to, I mean, if they are using it on a daily basis, they're not using half as much. I mean, so that it, there is a substantial decrease in terms of what they were provided to sign others, a lease signing. So let me ask a question, and I mean, what, what would be the remedy? If we were deciding the case, I'm not saying that's on the, I, I get it, there, there, you want to seek a remand, but what, what would be the appropriate remedy? In, in yeah, I think we judged remedy for laundry production services for laundry in many other cases. We just we just apply the same standard. Like that's where where there's a severance, and that's a clear you know that's very. 
clear in our law. If there's a severance of laundry, that's a decrease housing service. Right, but we have partial reduction in other kind of services all the time. Too, right? I mean, don't we? We never had applied a complete severance rule to DG housing services. And be out of the service for half the time, like reduction of heat. Yeah, it doesn't have to be hundred percent reduction of heat for us to give a complete right. housing service. Right. I think what's a little bit different here in this case, right, is that the housing service that was provided wasn't use of laundry machines, it was shared use. I think the ALJ is kind of focused on the equitable division that's based on the fact that um, tenants' reasonable expectation at the time they moved in is that you can't have two people doing laundry at the same time. So there's always going to be times when your use is restricted. So that's the question here whether knowing that you're going to have shared use of laundry machines, the landlord's decision to kind of buy it up in some way, the way they did it, was that a substantial reduction in what the tenant should have reasonably expected their kind of normal usage of the machines to be in. Because our, our typical case is one right where the landlord just cuts off one's access to laundry altogether. The tenants have well, I've seen ones too, for example, where there have been three washers, Three dryers, and then all of a sudden it goes to one washer, one dryer, that kind of thing. And that's a that, that's a substantial decrease in hours service. But here we're talking about time allotments or hours or permissible use, you know, being allocated. I, I was sympathetic to the landlord here because the tents are fighting over access to the laundry, and this is how he or she tried to resolve the issue, and it seemed fair and not a substantial decrease to me at least. Further discussion? Off the vote? Pardon me, I need to make sure. Um, the motion was to the appeal, but um, Commissioner Chen, did you want to amend that or? It's just in this vote. Uh, it was my, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just, it was a strict, strict, straight up. Now. Okay. So to deny the appeal? Commissioner Wasserman? Aye. President Gruber? Aye. Commissioner Mossbroker? No. Commissioner Chan? No. Commissioner Hung? Aye. The hearing officer's decision stands. We call back the. Uh, oh. We move on to item C, 1475 Oakdale Avenue, downstairs unit. Landlord appeals to decision granting the tenant claims of decreased housing services and failure to repair and maintain. In the decision, the administrative law judge found the landlord liable for the total sum of $5,588.40 for rent reductions for the decreased housing services of PG&E charges, bedroom ceiling leak, damaged kitchen drawers, and lack of access to a secure mail receptacle, as well as an ongoing $90 rent reduction for each unit each month thereafter until repairs were made. 
The ALJ also determined that the rent increase of $1,191 to $1,366.07, effective April 1st, 2023, was null and void for the landlord's failure to obtain a rent increase license as required by Rent Ordinance Section 37.15E. On appeal, the landlord claims that she already made the necessary repairs. The tenant has not been paying the PG&E charges, and the tenant should pay an increased monthly rent without any reduction because the tenant's entire family is living in the home. I think we also had a submittal, late submittal in our in our packet. Uh, Having looked at the late submittal, I would move to deny the appeal. Is there a second? Second. Further discussion? All for the vote. You deny the appeal. Commissioner Mossbroker? Aye. Aye. President Gruber? Aye. Commissioner Wasserman? Aye. Commissioner Hunt. Hearing officer's decision stands. We move on to item B, 3328 24th Street. Tenants filed the appeal one day late. The tenants claimed that they thought they were submitting the appeal timely since it was submitted within 15 days of the date the decision was mailed. I didn't realize that submitting it in the late afternoon would result in it being marked as filed uh, the next business day. Do I have a motion for move for to find good cause for late filing of the appeal? I'll second. Motion to second. Motion to find good cause for the late filing of the appeal. Commissioner Chen. Aye. Commissioner Wasserman? Aye. President Gruber? Aye. Commissioner Hung? Aye. Commissioner Mossbrooker? Aye. Okay, good cause has been found. We move on to the appeal. The tenants untimely appeal. The decision denying their claim of a lawful rent increase under the Pasta Hawkins Rental Housing Act. In the, the administrative law judge determined that the monthly rent increase from $3,386.11, $4,500 was authorized by Civil Code Section 1954.53 D2 of the Costa Hawkins Rental Housing Act because the evidence established that the tenant petitioners were subtenants and not lawful original occupants or co-tenants at the time the rent increase notice was served. In the appeal, the tenants claimed that the landlord made fault and contradictory statements, did not uh, properly notice a prior rent increase, that the California Tenant Protection Act of 2019, AB 1482, restricts rent, rent increases of more than 9.2% for anyone living in the unit and that additional witness testimony by an employee of the landlord could support the tenant claims. I would uh, move to deny. Uh, we there's been no 
decision from the Court of Appeal yet, but I think it's it's commonly accepted that uh, 1482 does not limit Costa Hawkins rent increases, that the housing stock here in city county San Francisco is subject to a more restrictive ordinance and is therefore exempt for the most part from 1482. Uh, so on that basis, as a matter of law, the decision is, is fine. A second. Discussion? All for the vote? Deny the appeal? Yes. Commissioner Wasserman? Aye. Bethany Gruber? Aye. Commissioner Mossbrooker? Aye. Commissioner Chen? Aye. Commissioner Hung? Aye. The hearing officer's decision stands. We move to item E, 1033 Broadway Street. Landlord appeals the decision granting the tenants claims of unlawful rent increase of, uh, of unlawful rent increase in the decision. The administrative law judge found the landlord liable for a total of 102,100 dollars for rent overpayments from October 1st, 2019 through October 31st, 2023. On appeal, the landlord asserts that the 2002 amendments to the Costa Hawkins Rental Housing Act had no effect on the exempt status of the subject condominium unit since the condominium conversion was completed prior to the effective date of the legislation. The landlord also argues that the administrative law judge improperly relied on a prior rent board decision as authority. I'm going to have to recuse myself from this case. I don't. I have no financial interest in it, but I did advise the bank, and I have filed the appropriate papers from the ethics commission. Going to move to deny. Okay. Yeah. Who wants to start this discussion? You go first. Ahead. Go ahead. I'll go first. <laughs> Why does the rent board feel that if you successfully complete a condominium conversion and create separately alienable property? under the prior version of a state law that a subsequent change to that state law without an express statement from the legislator that it should go back in time and recapture all the prior previously exempted properties, uh, absent that clear expression from the legislator, how can we make that assumption and, and cause this egregious, in my opinion, egregious result uh, to this owner. May I, yes, please. So commissioners, I, I think that's basically, it's just a, it's the, the vested right argument, essentially. Right. Huh? And so I think that there may be some sort of vested right to subdivide the property. Uh, however, if there was a vested right that once you're, you know, exempt from rent control, you're always exempt from rent control, then how would we have passed proposition I in 1994? Uh, how would we have an act of rent control in the first place if all of those owners who rented to tenants who were not under rent control 
could simply claim we had a vested right to remain exempt from rent control. So I don't think that argument has any support in law, and I didn't hear any cited. Not to mention this board already decided this novel issue previously. So, you know, and I think that that's the, the reasoning between behind the ALJ's decision is, is well summarized in the appeal response. So I don't know what other explanation I, I could give. I'll give you one. Um, the, it's not, not used so much anymore, but it's still a just cause. And that is the uh, substantial rehab or renovation and it was used commonly in the 80s and 90s, and then certain changes were made, I think, in the late 90s that uh, curtailed its use. But for many, I think there are 50 some odd buildings in town that are permanently exempt from the, the rent increase limitations. Now everything- Two years ago. Well, like Washington, who passed a law then brought those units under all other portions of the rent ordinance, except those that we were prevented from doing so because that <laughs> ordinance said that it's and we are bringing everything in regardless of your bill but we then reversed the exemption not on the rent increase limitations the sub rehab buildings are still uh, if we amended casa hawkins to permit those units to be brought under the rent ordinance will we still be prevented from doing so well if possible not changed state law said you could now regulate those units unless they've met one additional requirement State law changed. Here's the difference. You're talking about a repeal of Costa Hawkins. I agree with you. If Costa Hawkins is repealed next year, then sure, we can amend the ordinance to say that all buildings, no matter when built, come under the rent increase limitations of the rent law. In 2002. Uh, it was just for just cause because it couldn't go to the rent. Oh, in 2000. It's going to happen under the subject of this decision. But it the law changed and said, nope, actually, condominiums your interpretation depends on a vast overreading of the of West Hollywood versus the eleven twelve investments. I mean, in that case, the case was decided before the law was changed. In that case, the the landlord had issued all of the rent increases before the law was changed. But this that case doesn't say. This law change does not apply to any any condominium that was converted before the law was changed. It said it doesn't apply to these condominiums because, or it applies to these condominiums because they didn't follow through in renewing their ability to sell the condos. But it didn't go so far as to say this law does for every other condominium that was converted before 2000. They are then exempt from the new provisions of this law. That's a real overreading of the, that case. But it's it's not consistent with what we found previously and what we find as a board that if you you have a right to exercise rent increase and you don't do so, you don't lose it later. I mean, the status of the building doesn't change. It was converted in that situation all the time when. A single family house with an illegal unit has the illegal unit removed after the landlord goes through the process. And the tenant had rent control. And then all of a sudden, because the unit was removed with the permission of the city, the tenant loses their right to rent control. It's, it's the same situation. I mean, it, it's not right. Because in that case, the, 
title of the property is separate and alienable from the it, it falls again under cost off. Here, this is this has always been, right? Like it, it hasn't changed. The law changed later, but the, the status of the building remains the same. This unit was under rent control before Costa Hawkins. Well, before COVID, right? Because there was no exemption for condominiums under civil security ordinance. Costa Hawkins created that, and then a few years later, it said, however, that exemption will only apply if this additional requirement has been met. Right. So it went from not exempt to exempt to not exempt again, which often. Well, I, I, here's a pr problem, though. It, what we're saying is, is you did, you know, to these owners, they did everything correctly 20 some odd years ago, right? Did everything correctly to procure the exemption under Costa Hawkins. And now we're, we're saying, well, you know, that's great, but uh, because of a law that changed two years after the fact that did not, in its express terms, address previously converted and exempted properties, we're going to interpret that for you. And 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 create this massive liability. I I just it it it. it. It's the landlord's choice in the last two two cycles of rent increases to create the massive liability. I mean, our we have a statute of limitation that only goes back three years. You know, in terms of rent overpayments, and the reason that this rent increase or rent overpayment is so large is as the tenant's attorney points out, there was a retaliatory rent increase and then a rent increase above market in an attempt to have the tenant vacate. So it was the landlord who chose to impose those increases, take the gamble, and now we're saying, sorry, you were wrong, and this money is owed back to the tenant. The landlord is not being penalized and having to re send back to the tenant all the monies collected since 2000. The landlord is only having to refund the improper increases for the last three years. But that was before us. Right. I mean, when we're talking about a massive liability, that's the liability that we imposed under this decision. Yeah, I think the whole point of the 2002 amendment is so that, so that Landlords can't get out of rent control by doing a paper conversion with no intent to sell these units as condos. You don't get the legislature intended to 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 make make it clear that these units that are converted in name only and never intended to be sold as condo and never sold as condos remain rent control apartments, despite the fact that they are you know on on paper condos. And they remain with control until these units are sold as condos to individual purchasers. And in this case, they never did that. It's basically a apartment building. And the legislature basically said, in this situation, these units are basically apartment units, even if you know you call them condos. And I don't see any problem in saying that that's you know that applies from two down two forward. We're not thinking, we're not talking about pre-2002 rent increases. We're talking about post-2002 rent increases. I feel like the legislature is addressing this particular problem of landlords who are just doing these paper conversions. Well, I think the difference is that the legislature, legislature was trying to close a loophole of what the intention was in these conversions going forward, right? right. It, it, 
this conversion had already existed and happened, right? This right of a renting already, already was there. The legislature did not write into the law and any, this also- They didn't existed. write the opposite either. Right. right. So, so we default to the concept of a vested right that the landlord already had. So, you know, if they had wanted to make a retroactive law and close that loophole for all conversions that had ever happened, they could have done that, but they didn't. Their goal was to stop the intention of conversions going forward so that these conversions weren't happening for the sole purpose of removing rent control, as I read it. But yeah, it just seems very punitive for somebody who did something correctly. And, and as we said, well, Mr. Bill, just point out for historical knowledge reference here, my 16 years of the rent board, I think this is the largest rent overpayment case I've ever seen. Oh, really? I've seen a lot of big changes, but I've said thus far, but uh, yeah. The, the larger ones end up in SF Superior. Sure. First six figure rent overpayment. Well, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll make one last comment. You're, you're, we're saying we're not penalizing them for pre-202 increases, but in a way you are because by establishing this policy, as we all know, even though there's a three-year clawback on amounts paid, um, once you poison the well, that could, you could do that in 1980 and it forever haunts the rent increase, uh, subsequent rent increases. So the tenant does not get the refund. It doesn't get the refund, but it, well, unless, unless it's- So what I did here is relation. So we went, went back to 2007, right? Yeah. It wasn't a statute of limitations. The landlord would owe about 200 grand. So the landlord still gets to keep about 100 grand in normal tenant. No, I mean, that's so, an insane- So, so, so I, I, I struggled with this one. I struggled with this one because of the amount. Like I circled 102 grand and I thought this is enormous. Yeah. The reason why I'm sympathetic to the tenant's position, so, and then the issue is, is it, is it obviously retroactive? It's not clearly retroactive from the face of it. What I struggle with is the timing of it. So 01 was the amendment, and then 03 was City of Hollywood, and then this 163 Alhambra must have come after it. So we considered this issue before. So I'm kind of stuck with how did we land on this issue before? I don't know when 163 Alhambra was, but- 2014. So we've been living with this for a while, and that's. If it, yeah, I mean, I'm an advocate for consistency, right? Because we want the public to be able to contact the rent board research decision says what the rent board's done in the past. And so in this case, we have very similar facts to the case in 2014, and there's been no change in the law since that time. So, I mean, it's up to you all, right? Obviously, but that's why I am arguing. Uh, and that's, will, there's no reg. And, and when we get it wrong in 2014, that doesn't mean we don't fix it in 2023. Like, it, it, if we're wrong on the law, then we should fix it. It's not like there's a reg or something that, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting here advocating we should overturn. I mean, we had the rent board decision. We had a Superior Court order decision that affirmed the rent board decision. I mean, do you need a court appeal decision? Yeah, yeah. I do, actually. <laughs> Preferably a published one. Yeah. I mean, we had a rent increase in November of 2022, 17.8% from $4,500 a month to $5,300 a month. 
And that in part is why the amount that the tenant is due for the refund is so large because that came with it. Over a third of it counts from that last year based on that last rent increase. I mean, Commissioner Mellisberger, with all due respect, this is subject to Hosta Hawkins. It, if if the landlord's entitled to a rent increase, they're entitled to a rent increase. I mean, and I don't believe they are. I'm well, I understand that, but the amounts are completely in the still. It seems like the the amounts are giving. One of our commissioners some difficulty and I'm, I'm looking at what the landlord chose to do in the recent past, which resulted in those this amount of refund being so large. So, I understand and credit your view on the amount that makes sense to me. The, 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 as to how we got to the amount, I totally understand. It. I'm trying to figure out, is there anything in. Um, 1954 52 a that. Little little B two that says that it's only perspective. And I don't read it that way. I mean, it's not. It's it's interpretive. It doesn't say whether it's perspective. It doesn't say whether it's retroactive. It says condominium dwelling unit unit that has not been sold separately by the subdivider to a bona fide purchaser value. And then it says under B this paragraph does not apply. So I just view it as that's just the way it is. So I view it the way that Senior J views it. It's. The legislature clearly could have just said for condo conversions that happen on or after this date, this additional requirement is necessary. They didn't, right? So just like the plain language says, this is one of the elements the landlord needs to show to prove they're exempt. Then I think you have to contend with the legal concept of a vested right. I think that's where the argument goes next. If you have this right, which I think we all agree that had this rent increase notice been served prior to the enaction of this amendment. This would be a right that the landlord had. Then I think we have to contend with what is the case law on a vested right, and I think that's where this argument. And I think we're agreeing to take away a vested right. And then I think, did they? That's how we've interpreted this. Not how I've interpreted it, but I, I suppose it comes down to this: if the legislator's silent on the issue. It, we have discretion to do what, what we think ought to be done. Yeah, I, I struggle with that sometimes, but. I also do it, unfortunately, as. Unfortunately, the landlord's lost case in 2014. And this issue came up the 1st time. Well, to commissioner Klein's point, I mean, just because something happened in the past 10 years or 9, nine years ago here, I, I, this is a new, this is a different commission. I think. You know, there's only a couple commissioners here that, that were on, on the, the rent board in 2014. We're not bound to it. It's not stereo decisis or anything. Has this come up since 2014? Oh, the issue has come up twice ever. Yeah. Ever. Very slim. I mean, you know, that's, you, you never see it. I think this position that we all have sitting in this room really seriously. And I think part of that is like when just because something has been wrong doesn't mean. I you have to continue that. I think that reasonable people can disagree on what is correct and whether something was wrong in the past. All and I was here in 2014, and I don't think we made a mistake in 2014. I just, I don't think that the argument we've done it before, so we keep doing it in any place is a solid ground for reasoning. 
right? Yes. We should always be trying to make sure that we're right and, and doing it correctly. If there's an indication that we were wrong. In well, I think there is an indication that we should at least revisit this. And I think we all agree that we should be constantly trying to follow the law. That's our job. And to me, there's, there's a part of Klaus Hawking that says, this paragraph does not apply to either of the following, a condo unit that has not been sold separately to a subdivider, by, the, by a subdivider to a bona fide purchase of value. The initial rent amount of such a unit for the purpose of this chapter shall be lawful rent in effect on May 7, 2001. That basically shows to me that the legislature considered this issue and said that for those units, the initial rent starting May 2001 is the base rent for calculating um, rent control rent increases. So that's that to me is a clear indication that the legislature intending to apply this law to even to prior converted units without that were not sold to a bona fide purchaser. Any further discussion? Call for the vote. Motion to deny the appeal. Commissioner Mossbrucker? Aye. Commissioner Chan? Aye. President Gruber? No. Commissioner Wasserman? No. Commissioner Hung? Uh, aye. So the hearing officer's decision stands. Item F, 4725 Irving Street. Landlord submitted the appeal 194 days late because he did not discover an error in the decision until long after it was issued. I have a motion for good cause. I'd make that motion. Second. Motion to find good cause for late filing of the appeal. Commissioner Wasserman? Aye. President Cooper? Aye. Commissioner Mossbrucker? No. Commissioner Chan? Aye. Commissioner Hung? Aye. Good cause is found. We move on to the appeal. The landlord untimely appealed the decision granting their petition for a capital improvement passed in the decision. The administrative law judge granted the landlord's petition and found that Unit 7 was not eligible for all of the pass-through costs because the tenancy began after some of the work was commenced or completed. In the appeal, the landlord requests a correction of the move-in date for Unit 7 because the original petition incorrectly listed it as uh, March 1st, 2020, when it should have been March 1st, 2010. And this error caused the tenant to be improperly disqualified from receiving pass-through costs for some of the capital improvement work. I'd move to accept the appeal. It was uh, an error, a paperwork error. Happens. Second. I find this very troubling. It was the landlord's appeal or the landlord's petition, which was filed on October 4th, 2021. The decision was March 21st, 2023. This appeal is now 
seven months after the decision. And there's no explanation why the this experienced capital improvements pass through person who also had a landlord who was represented by counsel didn't discover the error earlier, didn't do something to amend the petition before the decision was made. This went on for two years before we even had a decision. And, that, and there was plenty of time for the landlord to read their own paperwork and correct it. And there was no explanation of how this mistake was made or why it was made. And yet, with all this delay, we're going to reward the, the landlord and say, oh, it's okay, you made a little boo-boo two years ago, now you can raise the rent as much as you, as you desire against this tenant. Um, this commission is uh, given latitude for things far more than this. I and think at a minute, there's not a to, to, to cause any type of, uh, of issue except a mistake. The tenant didn't appear at the, at the hearing on this, on this petition. They may well have chosen not to contest the capital improvements because they realized that on, as the petition was written, they would not have to pay the pass through. So they've been tricked out of their right to have a to, to challenge the appeal. I, I think, though, if the decision were to be remanded and corrected, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that would the uh, impacted tenant uh, could could file an appeal. Isn't that correct? There'd be a new decision. Testing new appellate rights for 15 day period. Yeah, yeah, it's so, not a technical correction. It's a remand. It's a remand, right? So, so we're going to let this landlord filed an appeal or filed their petition in 2021. Come in 2 years later, say, oops, I made a mistake. And now I want this. This rent increase imposed. How, what is the limit on that? Can they wait five years, 10 years? I, but I suddenly realized it was a mistake and now I get. Get to correct it. Here's how I see it. Uh, the litigators in the room, we don't have a like a 473 motion here, rent board. In other words, you're not required. There's no mechanism by which you come in and fall on the sword, like there is in court, for example, when we do make a mistake across the street. There was no even an effort to do that. I, I think it's pretty honest and self-evident here that there was a mistake. Said we made a mistake. We 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 discovered the mistake, and and you're saying, well, more details should have been provided. Maybe, maybe not, but that's not the 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 uh, standard by, by which we were to judge this. And I think that, you know, I'm hard pressed to believe they're lying about it. And, and just what what motive would they have to sit on this for two years and and twiddle their thumbs? I don't see it. And we've had a lot of discussions about. When are our decisions final? I'm, I'm just. We have. And, and President Gruber's correct. I mean, we've gone out on on major limbs before on, on all kinds of things, and uh, that's the way we do it. And 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 I accept that. And now there's an opportunity to to correct a mistake, and it's. I'll just say that we um, we do typically give lots of latitude to the tenants, and we should also give lots of latitude to. Landlords in this case, it's a pretty clear mistake. I think. I think anyone's debating that is a mistake. So it seems like the kind of one that we should just uh, remand, fix and remand. 
and then we can challenge. Further discussion? A motion to accept the appeal and remand the case to the ALJ. Commissioner Wasserman? Aye. Senator Gruber? Aye. Commissioner Mossbrucker? No. Commissioner Chan? Aye. Commissioner Hall? Aye. There'll be remand and new hearing, and you'll receive the proper uh, documentation from our office for date and time. We'll move on to item G, 2016 to 2024, Taylor Street. Landlord appealed the decision denying their petition for a capital improvement pathway. In the decision, the administrative law judge found that the capital improvement work was required to correct a total violation, was unabated for over 90 days, and that the landlord failed to establish that the circumstances causing the delay in completing the capital improvement work were reasonable or beyond the landlord's control. In the appeal, the landlords assert that they met their burden of proof at the hearing and should have another opportunity to provide additional evidence to prove that they made timely good faith efforts to complete the capital improvement work. Well, given my stand in the last one, I would move to deny. Second. I mean, this is, there was a permit application two days before the absolute deadline to apply for the permit. That was in 2017. There was a September 15th, 2019 deadline to complete the work. That was well before COVID. The NOD was issued in September 20, 26, 2019. And they did not bother to get a contract to do the work until 2020. And this whole project had been proposed way back in 2014. Um, and so you would think that during that time period between 2014 and 2017, the landlord could have done some exploration of whether or not the project was feasible, whether or not they could obtain the permits, and whether or not they could have obtained the financing. And instead, everything was left, left to the last second. And there was no explanation of why the work wasn't done in the 18 month other than some vague statements about COVID after the NMB was already issued. If the board wants to remand for additional evidence, say LJ to take additional evidence, that's fine with me. But I think that should be without any sort of implication that we have an opinion as to whether or not the ALJ was correct. Their initial findings. I could get on board with that. With that. Whatever. What other evidence can be provided? Who knows? But yeah, who knows? That's a, uh, well, who knows? We don't know. Uh, they had their opportunity over and over again. They had their opportunity in the hearing, and now we just want to provide more evidence to explain away our negligence in, in performing these duties. Uh, 
I, I'm not representing them, so I couldn't tell you that. But we we remanded cases plenty of times for the purpose of providing additional evidence. And if somebody fails in that burden, then so be it. Okay, then let's see the additional evidence. I mean, I didn't see anything new in that. I mean, it's just excuse after excuse after excuse. Perhaps, perhaps, but maybe there's there's something that that is compelling that would be competent evidence of, of justifying a delay. You're saying what could it be? Or be telling us what that compelling thing is before we send it back. Well, aren't they telling us with a declaration that there are more than 50 emails covering the period from 2014 to 2021 that will document the owner's actions to get the soft storage work completed? I can provide these documents. It looks like all this stuff was already presented. Oh, this is just for the appeal. Yeah, I did October 3rd. I mean, they're declaring under. I don't think perjury. They have more stuff. This is from October this year, like a couple days ago. Kim Board Boyd Birmingham is declaring she has. It's just another excuse. It's you not What additional evidence they have, and they're they're declaring they have additional evidence. An excuse is argument. We're looking for evidence. This is not the forum to have evidence heard. Uh, this is not that forum, but right. I think we need to remand this meeting. Well, I appreciate your comments, uh, Commissioner Pro. The the process is not uh, uh, exempt. From all kinds of bumps and 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 hurdles, having uh, the, the pandemic at the same time, people were making different decisions. Tenants weren't allowing you in. I mean, I'm making up things. I'm not, that this is not part of this, but I, having been through the process, it's amazing how difficult this this thing was, and still is, still in the process. So, let them have their 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 their, you know. A declaration or penalty of perjury from an architect talking about personal knowledge. I mean, I feel like there's a lot here that we get looked at. Yeah, that was executed on October 2nd. Yeah. So she discussed the need sometimes to be empathetic. And if you read the declaration, the Clarence was discussing the fact that her father was sick and also that she went through breast cancer treatments during that period. I'm not sure that that necessarily explains the entire gap. You could easily take the view that. Why were they thinking of an ADU during that period and then retracting it? Meaning, it's their decision to delay the site to pursue the ADU and now withdraw that. This is new evidence. We should send it back without making a decision on how they'll reach it. So I would withdraw my motion and I would move to remand for the ALJ to consider whatever new evidence is presented, but that that does not indicate that the Board has any sort of preference in terms of what the decision is. Correct. Is that hearing only if necessary or what? A hearing? I think there should be a hearing. And, you know, they're going to submit just on the papers. Now, I, I think a remand hearing, I would second that remand hearing. Okay. Did you get that? Yes. Uh, so, uh, a motion to accept the appeal and to remand the ALJ to consider new evidence and have a new hearing. Okay. Commissioner Mossbrooker. Any uh, call for the vote or any further discussion? Call for the vote, please. Commissioner Mossbrooker. Aye. Commissioner Wasserman. Aye. Commissioner Hung. 
Aye. President Kluber? Aye. Mr. Chen? Aye. Thank you. The appeal uh, will be uh, sent back and we'll receive uh, the information from our office of date and time. With that, uh, that completes our appeals. And so remarks from the public? Yeah, yeah. Mark from the public team. Thank you, President Gruber. It is now time for the second of two public comment periods this evening. Both public comment periods tonight are for general public comment and for all items listed on the agenda. For all members of the public, general procedures have not changed. You will have three minutes to provide your comment. If you have an interpreter interpreting your comment, you will have six minutes. You are encouraged but not required to state your name for the record. If you are giving comment regarding an item on the agenda, please state which item you are speaking about. Please note that anything you say during public comment cannot be used as evidence with regard to the item on which you are speaking. Once your time is up, staff will so indicate you may hear a timer beeping and you will be informed your time is up. We will now take comment from members of the public here in the meeting room. You step forward one at a time. There are no members of the public who wish to provide public comment. Thank you. That concludes our um, second public comment period this evening. So that ends the, uh, the second uh, public hearing. Some remarks for the uh, for the, the public. We'll move on to item eight communication. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, this is Executive Director Christina Varner. So you should have received an article from the San Francisco Examiner, uh, Departmental Workload Statistics for September 2023, copy of the Tenant Right to Organize Amendments passed uh, on October 3rd, uh, that went into effect on November the 12th, I believe, uh, proposed amendments to Rent Board Rules and Regulations Section 1010 by Commissioner Klein. And, Together with a memo from Supervisor Chan that you have received previously. As well, you should have received a Board of Supervisors file number 231020, um, amending the rules of order and limiting public comment opportunities. And finally, there was a memo from Board Secretary uh, Deputy Director Texador regarding 2024 proposed board meeting dates. Thank you. Any questions on communications? Move on to item nine, director's report. Good evening, commissioners. It's executive director Christina Barner again. Hello. Uh, so, firstly, I want to extend my congratulations to commissioners Crow, uh, Haley, Hung, and Sonny, who are being reappointed to new four year terms. Thank you. This is happening. <laughs> Um, Commissioners Crow and Sonny were sworn in at the mayor's office yesterday, and uh, 
Barbara and I got to see Commissioner Sawney get sworn in. Uh, we missed Commissioner Crow. As you know, they operate very expediously if you do not, uh, <laughs> even if you show up early, sometimes things have already happened. So we're sorry we missed you, but we got to see Commissioner Sawney. That was wonderful. Um, and Commissioners Hung and Healy will follow very soon. Um, so we are very happy to continue working with you and we continue uh, appreciate the continued support from the mayor's office. Um, daily operations continue as usual. Our first uh, rent board fee and inventory unit supervisor, we have a supervisor for the unit now, can't believe it, um, started at the rent board this week and she will join us at the December board meeting. Uh, so you will meet her in December. Um, we are, we have some good news. Um, we are expecting three new administrative law judges to start in January. Um, we're very excited about that. And we're also currently in the process of filling three vacant counselor positions. So there's a, been a lot of movement around with promotions and such. Can you, can you disclose the names of the- We cannot disclose the names today. <laughs> we will be able to disclose names yeah. next meeting. Yeah. Um, and we're really just busy training uh, you know, numerous new uh, staff members and attending to our public. Um, we have, with regard to outreach, we have focused on slightly different types of outreach this past month. Um, and we are collaborating with San Francisco Public Library, getting written materials out to all branch libraries uh, regarding the fee and inventory and putting a fee and inventory last in the library's weekly newsletter, as well as putting written communications in the assessor uh, quarterly email blast. Um, and we hope to resume uh, regular sort of in-person outreach activities in the new year. It's usually pretty tricky during the holidays. The housing inventory and rent board fee informational notice has now been sent out to approximately 185,000 property owners. Um, we've so far received over 9,000 new fee exemption requests. And importantly, we've seen some early compliance with the newly opened 2024 inventory cycle with over 1,900 submissions, uh, 950 licenses having been generated and nearly 1,300 parcels having reported. Uh, the fee exemption request window is open until December 11th. And importantly, all property owners can report into the inventory and request licenses now for the 2024 cycle. So please tell your friends. Um, as for legislation, so it's not uh, brand new. We talked about it last meeting, uh, Board of Supervisors file 230810, which will amend the tenant right to organize or is amending the tenant right to organize legislation passed unanimously by the Board of Supes on October 3rd. It went into effect on November 12th. Um, and that will probably be discussed a little bit later. Um, just a couple of small updates. We're working with the Ethics Commission, um, who has produced a number of useful handouts and videos for increased city and county employee general understanding of complex ethics rules. Um, and they're producing also some new training modules. So you may receive some requests to complete trainings in the new year. And this is separate from your regular Form 700 and Ethics and Sunshine training. Um, there are a lot of questions with that Form 700. Living <laughs> that nightmare. You're not the only one, Commissioner Wasson. No, that's sorry. I hope you're getting support on that. Thank you. Please do let us know if you need assistance. Uh -huh. um, 
changes just the form seven. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you off why. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, you know, high end attorneys working on it. That all they do, you know, they're legislative attorneys in Sacramento, and and what they tell me is that the law is so convoluted and complex that that it it's it's really mind boggling. And it, and it what it can do ultimately is is um, hamper the ability of people to volunteer like what we're all doing tonight. It, you know, if we're unable to to you know, get caught up in, in gotchas and traps and whatnot, I, I don't. I don't. I'm not gonna. Uh, that's it. I'm not gonna talk about it anymore. But there, it, there's a lot of a lot of issues. And it can't be in business. No. Then you don't have any records. No. The ethical ethics laws are very complex. Very great. That they're complex, <laughs> and we're working with ethics because they're really trying to sort of infuse this culture of ethics into like sort of ordinary departmental staff, you know, citywide um, from individuals who would really never look at the ethics commission website and really know very little about ethics. If we didn't give them the statement of incompatible activities to read on their first day on the job, you know, so it's, they're trying to little by little sort of distill the information for the ordinary user. But yes, there are even those among us who have read some and delved into some pretty complicated things in our life and the, the rules are very complicated. What I would encourage everyone to do is the, the uh, decisions, they're usually settlements or stipulations and they're all online for various commissioners and there's quite a few of them. But read some of those decisions and it'll give you an idea, not to scare you, but perhaps educate you. Um, that's how I spend my time now, but, but uh, it, it, there, there's Quite an extensive library of, of, of ethics commission decisions and stipulations from Erickson. Lastly, uh, save the date, the rent holiday party is on December 14th in the afternoon. More information coming. You'll give, you'll give us a uh... Location and time and all that stuff. Yes. Thank you. Great. Thank Great. you. Yeah. Sorry, we have to talk about something fun at the end. <laughs> Did anyone have any questions, comments? So thanks again to our oh, Commissioner Slani. Yeah, it, um, I'll, I'll speak about this today. The purview of the presence of the uh, executive director report. So before, when we uh, in the previous appeal, there was comments on the NOV and just kind of uh, the process for how we're coordinating with other departments uh, to make sure that in terms of pastors, could you speak to that or, or, or? I'm so sorry, I cannot hear you very. Sure, I'll, I'll okay, either. restate what. I will restate it. So uh, in the public first public comments section, uh, there was uh, just a request for clarification on coordination between. Uh, the rent board and uh, I guess in this case it probably was DBI in terms of uh, having the NOV being recorded and therefore not, uh, not allowing a pass through to occur. So asking for clarification on what that process is and in terms of, and also in terms of coordination between other departments, just for my own curiosity. And if I miss explain that correctly, I think maybe Joey's Joey's here. Thank are you referring to a pastor or are you referring to a rent increase? A rent increase. 
it's a rent referring to the comment. The comment, that initial public comment. Um, At this point, I can. I would think it would require the board of supervisors to take some action to require coordination between for DBI to send rent board notices of violation, which have been outstanding more than whatever amount of days. And there's nothing. There's in the nothing rent. in. Yes, sorry. No, that's okay. You can go. <laughs> I mean, that's the main. It's it's a, a completely valid point, right? Is that the rent ordinance refers to this license that's issued when the landlord complies with the rental housing inventory. However, there's a variety of reasons why a landlord may not be entitled to an immediate rent increase, even though they have a license, right? And it could have a five-year lease, which prohibits rent increases. Uh, there could be long-term outstanding notices of violation, but the rent ordinance itself, the law itself, doesn't allow us to place any of these other conditions on the issuance of a license. The law, once the landlords comply with the housing inventory requirements, they will be they, the rent board must issue a license, and then we can only revoke that license if the landlord fails to renew their information on a yearly basis. So it would require legislative changes. I mean, there's legislative changes. There's also just like procedural changes within the department in terms. Yeah. I think this would require legislative okay. change. Yeah, we've uh, been aware of this issue. We've been previously made recently made aware of this from this perspective. Oh, and I guess my comment is not to say that we wouldn't deny the approval, but maybe just noting that, that there is an NOV uh, is probably what I would be recommending. Uh, but again, just. Thank you for the quick. Uh, and just shedding light on that. Um, and happy to talk further with about it with you too. Are there additional questions? I will save them for the next section. Okay. It's more applicable there. Thank you. What was that? I'm so sorry. It's applicable in the other section. So thank you. Are there any other questions or comments? Okay. I take care of. Uh, it's President Gruber. I take care of a director's report. Do we move on to item 10 old business? We have proposed amendments to rules and regulations section 10.10, right to organize legislation. So I'm, we're still working through now the amended legislation. So the regs still, still finishing the draft of the regs. What do you want to put this over? Yeah, let's put it over. Yeah. I assume you're working on a, a new draft of regulations. Yes. Because of the changes and that we can toss out the old one and start, you're starting from scratch, from starting fresh. I mean, I'm not starting fresh, but the amendments uh, are helpful. 
Are we still planning on running it by the city attorney or do we even? Yes. Or... I will definitely do that. Okay. I have a question for staff. Uh, so uh, this states in the uh, ordinance that uh, if a landlord uh, denies the ability of a tenant to organize that they're entitled to uh, a rent reduction due to uh, reduced housing services, has there been any contemplation on what exactly, how exactly that would be structured? How would we... So, I mean, this law basically, you know, there's a number of housing services which all recognize heat, you know, a roof that doesn't leak, maybe a garage parking spot. So, this law just added kind of one more item to that kind of bundle of housing services that a tenant is entitled to, which is the right to form a tenant association and perform certain organizing activities. This says that if the landlord gets in the way of that or doesn't allow that, that, that might be seen as a substantial decrease in services for which a tenant can petition the rent board for a rent reduction. Uh, we did receive a number of those petitions when the initial tenant organizing law was enacted back in 2022. Um, a lot of those cases were settled or partially settled by a mediation. Yeah. And I'll tell you, this issue hasn't really been like the top of my radar because we haven't received any new petitions in about a year. And all the ones that we did get, it didn't get resolved. Like no one's been contacting us to say, you know, put it back on calendar immediately. So I don't know what's happening out in the field, but there hasn't been a lot of activity at the RIMP board around this issue recently. But yeah, so tenants can file a petition though and request a rent reduction if they can show that the landlord uh, interfered with their ability to organize. And it would be applied to all the tenants of the... No, just the tenant filed a petition. Tenant filed a petition. Okay. And it has to assert their own rights. I mean, they could file a they could file a multi-unit petition. So we have a petition where multiple tenants in the same building can file a petition together. They're petitioners. They each have to assert that then decreasing services as to them, not as to their neighbor or someone else, in order to receive a rent reduction. Okay. I guess uh, the reason why I asked that question is since we are creating a legal entity that's out of that is. Now, if you go ahead as a tenant association, how does that then exist within the structures of the ordinance? Uh, it sounds as though we still need to file individual um, petitions for each individual tenant, opposed to recognizing the tenant association as its own singular body, where we don't support it, it should have been filed multiple times. Yeah, the tenant association, I mean, representative could organize the tenants, assist them with filing petitions, and they could file kind of like, you know, it's a multi-unit petition, it's almost similar to like a, you know, Renfrew's version of a class action lawsuit, but each person uh, has to bring a claim, right? The association can't just file a claim and win the case and everyone in the building gets a rent reduction, regardless of their involvement in the case. Um, they have to actually assert a claim, claim themselves. Often they may have a representative that does the, you know, provides the evidence, the arguments, and things like that, but they're going to have to at least be somewhat involved in the case, at a minimum, filing a petition in their own name, signing the petition. To turn to that standard, is that just bypass practice, or is that uh, 
I mean, I think it's just fundamental, right, to the rent ordinance is that if I'm alleging I have experienced a decrease since I live in a multi-unit building, I, I want to bring a claim against the landlord. You have to bring a claim. I don't file a petition and bring in a claim on behalf of all my neighbors and unrelated people and they get a rent reduction. Each person has to demonstrate, has to meet their burden of proving that there's been a decrease in services as to them in order for us to reduce that rent. Yeah. That takes care of uh, old business. Any new business? There's no new business, President Cooper. And Was that one submittal that we have? Does that to go to staff about comments on our uh, form that we're using to? What's it? Uh, staff has received that. Pardon? Staff has received that. President. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, then we move on to calendar items. Uh, Executive Director, you're in charge. December twelfth. 2023 is our regular in-person meeting here at 25 Van Ness, room 610. Uh, for consideration of appeals, we have two appeal considerations. And the reader of the Ramatush Ohlone land acknowledgement will be Commissioner Pro. I won't be at the next meeting. Thank you, buddy. That is for calendar items. Yes, that is President Uber. We move on to item 13 adjournment. It's not bad. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.